I'm going to invite Scott Campbell to, to uh, make his way down to the front. I know that many of you, if not most of you, have heard of MCC, Mennonite Central Committee. Organization started, I think, probably early in Russia in about 1920, and has probably gone through several different um, rebirths, maybe even rebranding. But the mission of MCC has always been for the Church of God like Chris Wien said earlier, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. That in, in Matthew where Jesus says, when somebody says, well, how did I serve you, God? And Jesus says, when you help the least among you, you are actually doing that for me. And so some of what Scott's going to talk about is going to maybe seem quite far away. But I encourage us to think about it in terms of the life we live here. Now, what does that mission mean to us here in this pretty affluent country that we're blessed to live in? Scott probably got up at about 5 o'clock this morning, drove from Abbotsford. Mm -hmm. We talked last night and we thought about how beautiful that highway would be with the blue sunshine and the sunrise peeking up over the mountains. <laughs> it wasn't that kind no. of a trip. <laughs> no, but we're glad you're here safe. Um, MCC, as most of you know, has a little thrift store that they operate in Rutland that does amazing work. Um, but we sometimes kind of see MCC at a very local level. I'm a regular shopper there, Scott. Good. All of my well-aged leather coats Perfect. come from MCC. Mm -hmm. Some of them my family forbids me to wear in public, <laughs> but I'm allowed to wear them around the yard, as well as well-aged farmer sausage. You get it at the thrift store? We get that at the thrift store. Behind the counter, in a freezer, there is well-aged Mennonite farmer sausage. You have to know a password or something to Almost. get to that? Almost. <laughs> there have been many times where I've come into MCC, come directly to the counter, and I said, you know what, I'm, I'm out of farmer sausage. And people who are lining up beside me with their other items say, they sell sausage? <laughs> sell sausage here? And I say, yes, yeah, it's, it's the best sausage in the world. Anyway, MCC and the money raised from that thrift store, many other thrift stores, and through donations of people of God, do incredible work around the world. And Scott, I just invite you to share some, what that looks like. Uh, and God bless you as you share with us this Thank morning. You. Thanks, Doug. Well, good morning, everybody. Oh, we can do better than that. Good morning, everybody. Ah, that's a church. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's a real uh, great privilege to be here this morning. I was saying to a number of folks, this church reminds me of a church that my wife and I were in for years and years and years when we were first married. Uh, we met in a school gym. We had, that church had for 40 years. Uh, there was a great mix of uh, people who were young, young families, people who were more mature. That's a nice way of saying old. And, um, and it's, it's lovely to be in that setting again. So thanks for having me here. Um, just over a year ago, uh, the young uh, body of a lifeless boy, Alan Curdy, washed up on the shores of the Mediterranean. And that picture went viral, and it awoke the world to the realities of a crisis that was going on in the Middle East with uh, refugees. It's not the only refugee crisis in the world. It happens to be the largest right now. Uh, but it did point to the fact that us here in North America are really out of touch with some of the realities that are going on in the world. 
And since that time, uh, MCC has been working with hundreds of churches, um, groups within churches, and even groups outside of church communities who have been sponsoring refugees and refugee families to uh, come to Canada and start a new life. Now, the reality is 99% of the refugees in the world will never come to Canada. They are waiting to get back into the country of their origin. But this morning, uh, I'm really excited to share with you some of the stories and people behind the headlines. Back uh, this spring, uh, it was, uh, I was about two months into my job at MCC. I just started in this past February, and I was invited to go on a learning tour with a group from MCC to go see the front lines of the refugee crisis. And we were heading to Lebanon. We hear often a lot about Turkey, uh, but Lebanon is just as much on the front lines of everything that's going on. To my wife's chagrin, when you say um, you're going to a war-torn country on the front lines of refugee crisis, it's not something that your family gets terribly excited about. Uh, but Margaret was happy that I came back uh, with just stories. And uh, I'm going to share some of those with you this morning. So uh, let me read this to you. I believe I've passed the age of consciousness and righteous rage. I found that just surviving was a noble fight. I once believed in causes too that I had my pointless point of view and life went on no matter who was wrong or right. That's uh, lyrics by Billy Joel from the song Angry Young Man, his 1976 album Turnstiles. I'm a big Billy Joel fan. And uh, I love Billy Joel's songs because there's usually a character in there that I can relate to. And in this particular song, he's singing about this angry young man, this man who has such high standards for himself and the world that he's constantly disappointed when, his idea, when people fall short of his ideals. And throughout his life, people continue to disappoint him and he gets angrier and anger, angrier, no longer at the world he sees, but at the experiences he has. And this particular uh, phrase, this particular uh, verse comes at the end of the song where he's this angry old man who is now bitter and embattled and has nothing else to give. He's been eaten up by his anger. And I don't want that to happen to me. See, when I was in Lebanon, I was expecting to feel lots of emotions, and I did. But there were surprising emotions. I was not sad. Uh, I was not um, confused or um, disappointed. I was angry, very angry. Halfway through my trip, I was so angry that it's that kind of anger that when you touch anything or talk to anyone, you seem to leave like a black smudge because you're just angry. And so I came back and I had to digest what was going on. And um, I always love to know where my story fits into a bigger story, where the narrative I'm experiencing fits into the narrative of the Bible. So I was flipping through and I stumbled across the Proverbs. And King Solomon's uh, interesting guy. He's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but his Proverbs seem to pull out these nuggets of wisdom about how the world works or how life works best. And I stumbled across this this particular passage that says, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all wrongs. And further down, I read this. When the tempest passes, the wicked are no more, 
but the righteous are established forever. And so I thought, I wonder if that's been repeated anywhere else. And of course, it has. You jump to the New Testament and Peter writes, paraphrasing, he says, above all, maintain constant love. Constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. And that helped me start to digest some things. And so this morning, I think it's perfect that our worship set was uh, focused around invitation. Because the invitation for you this morning is to hear some of these stories and trust that God has something to say to you. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit will soften your heart and your mind to see how big and how great our God is and to see what part you might have to play in the stories that God is working on in the lives of people here and around the world. So let's talk about Lebanon, first of all. Uh, Lebanon is a country that maybe you haven't uh, given much thought to. It's not a large country. It's about the size of Cape Breton Island, not big. Uh, it's on the east, uh, the western side, or the eastern side of the Mediterranean, but on the western side of Syria. It's got Israel to the south of it, but other than that, it's completely surrounded by Syria. It's a very old region. Some of the oldest cities that are, have been inhabited since the dawn of time are in uh, Lebanon. Next slide. Uh, there are 1.5 million refugees in Lebanon. And let me put that into context for you. There are 15 million Lebanese citizens in the world. Only 4 million of them live in Lebanon. The other 11 million live around the world and send money back to Lebanon, and that's the only thing keeping the Lebanese economy floating. So when you have 4 million Lebanese citizens and you get this influx of 1.5 million refugees, things go sideways pretty fast. And things are pretty sideways. Not just because of the refugees, but Lebanon, if you have any sense of world history, uh, in the last decade or two has come out of its own civil war. So infrastructure is not as uh, strong as it could be, let's say. In fact, when we came this spring, they had just come out of a garbage crisis where they couldn't figure out how to collect garbage. So there's piles of garbage in, cer in certain neighborhoods, which leads to not the greatest smell when you're touring Lebanon. 300 of these uh, uh, refugees are Palestinian refugees. And I bring that stat up because there have been refugees coming into Lebanon since the 40s. Uh, Palestinians have been on the move since the uh, Second World War. And now there's more Palestinians coming in as the original refugees went to Syria and Iraq, and now they're being kicked out of those countries. And there's a 70% poverty rate in the country. 70%. It's, you might as well say 100%, because it's uh, so apparent and so obvious. Next slide. So the way MCC works is that we actually partner with organizations and churches on the ground. And we are a very grassroots organization where those partners and churches rise up projects and approach MCC and we partner with them to get those projects accomplished. In Lebanon and Syria, we currently have 14 partners and are currently working on 38 projects. Everything from peacemaking to trauma care to food security, material resources, shelter, education, health, and female empowerment. To date, MCC has sent over to the region $35 million, and that's the largest response in MCC's almost 100-year history. 
but that's what you do when you have the largest humanitarian crisis in the world since the Second World War. Next slide. So we arrived in Beirut. Has anybody ever been to Beirut? No one? It's um, not a pretty city. You could tell that it used to be a pretty city. It is not anymore. Uh, we uh, took a number of pictures, but this picture on your right uh, is pretty typical of the city, where you've got this big empty lot, then you've got this building built in like the 40s, and then another building built in the 60s, and then another building that's completely empty, built by Saudi money, built in the last five years. There's not a lot of urban planning. Uh, when they can't figure out how to pick up their garbage, then the chances that someone's sitting around figuring out where to put buildings is pretty low on the priority list. But you eat. Man, do you eat. And after 10 or 12 days, uh, I said to my wife, I think if you squeezed me, hummus would come out of my pores. So much hummus. So much so that when my dad picked me up at the airport to drive me home, I said, can we please get a hamburger? I just needed to flush some of the hummus out of my body. So on day one, we went to the Middle East Near East School of Theology. Uh, we needed to get us some context of what we were going to witness. And this is Dr. Uh, Shabra. He is the president of the Near East School of Theology. Do not let anyone tell you that Christians are not present in the Middle East. They are very present. Very, very present. And the last thing that will help them is for us to continue to talk about the fact that they're not there. They're very there. And they need our support and our help. Dr. Shabra is the president of the Near East School of Theology. He teaches um, pastors and lay people from around the Near East. And he gave us a bit of context about uh, the political and the, um, and the history of Lebanon. And it's crazy. In fact, later on in our trip, we had another person ask us, so do you have a good sense of what the government and the history of Lebanon is? And we said, we do not. And they said, good. Because if you did, somebody's lied to you. Because those of us who live here do not have a handle on the government or the history of Lebanon. So if you think you've got it after 10 days, somebody is telling you the wrong thing. But Dr. Schauber gave us a, a good introduction. It is a complicated place, uh, made even more complicated by the fact that there has been Western intervention in the area for a long time, not the least of which has been since the Second World War where Lebanon was under um, French control and set up what is now modern-day Lebanon. This is Father Walid. Father Walid is a... Um, Catholic priest in Syria. He uh, works south of Damascus, and he and seven other fathers care for 2,000 people uh, who are displaced because of the war. And uh, MCC was so important to him that he risked crossing the border out of Syria to come to Beirut for the day and then go back. Now, getting out is not the issue. Getting back is the issue. But uh, Father Walid thought it important enough to meet with us. He didn't speak um, English, so he had a translator. Oh, jump back one. Thank you. And uh, at one point, uh, Father Walid was telling us his story, and uh, he just broke down crying. And he spun his chair around, he's turned around for about 30 seconds, composing himself. You can see his shoulders heaving, and he turns back around and just keeps talking. Father Walid is tired. Father Walid, for three years, has been caring with seven other fathers for 2,000 people whose uh, very existence depends on uh, Father Walid's ingenuity. And Father Walid's tiredness doesn't just come from the three years. Father Walid's tiredness comes from projecting what's going to come in the future. 
And the challenge is Father Walid does not know what's going to come in the future. Uh, we were reminded time and time again that uh, these things don't end quickly. They can go on for decades, and Father Walid doesn't know how much longer he can sustain this. MCC works with Father Walid, providing food and food vouchers for uh, those 2,000 people, and Father Walid is very thankful for those of you who support MCC and the work of MCC in the region. Uh, this is a dispensary. It's like a walk-in clinic. Uh, MCC supports this dispensary as well. This is uh, Liza and Grace. Liza is a nurse. Grace is a social worker. These two women, along with a rotation of doctors, run this clinic. They serve 1,700 families through this clinic, and that's not the walk-ins. Those are the people who are on their list. There's another 700 people on their list, and they serve a neighborhood mostly of refugees, uh, and some of the more important work they, they do is around trauma care. As you can imagine, if someone came into your home in the middle of the night and told you you had 24 hours to get out, and you had to leave your home not knowing what you were going into and when you would ever come back, uh, and seeing atrocities as you go, the level of trauma is quite high. So uh, MCC supports a trauma care program through the, um, through the dispensary, and uh, Grace runs that trauma care program. Next slide. While I was there, um, one of the things that I did every day, I really love stories. And um, so at the end of our long days, we'd usually start around 8 in the morning and go till 9 at night. And uh, I'd just stop and spend an hour and a half just writing a blog post, just so I could capture my stories as I understood them, but also to share them back home. So they're on the MCC website. But I brought one story with me today that just kind of summarizes my experience with uh, some of the families. Um, so this picture goes along with this blog post, so I'm going to read it to you now. Uh, this blog post is called Malad. I can't tell what I'm smelling, but it's not good. I'm walking up the stairs of an apartment building that is currently without power. I'm with Grace from our lady dispensary and three other members of our learning tour from, group, from our, our learning tour group from MCC Canada. We are following Wafa, the woman in the foreground, to her apartment located in the Beirut neighborhood of Banshir. Grace tells us on the short car ride over that this neighborhood is mostly inhabited by refugees. Rent is cheaper than the other areas of town and that's the reason that Wafa, her husband, her three kids, and her two in-laws have moved here from another apartment that they shared with her brother. That, and her brother, has been sponsored to move to Canada and will be leaving soon. This is additional pain for Wafa. Her family is Iraqi. They have been in Beirut two years. Grace, with the support of MCC donors, has been working with Wafa in the dispensary's trauma care program. Wafa has agreed to talk to a small group of us in her apartment. She knows that sharing her story is important for her healing and for us to understand what's happening as a result of the conflicts in the Middle East. We reach the top floor and we make our way down a long, narrow hallway to a sitting room. There are no pictures on the wall and the two old couches are pushed to the edges of the room. The sun through the curtains make the room feel bright but stark. We are offered water, a Middle Eastern tradition and a sign of welcome. Grace invites us to ask questions to anyone in the family. I ask if I can take pictures. Grace confirms that that's okay. As soon as I pull out my camera, Wafa's seven-year-old boy, Malad, is transfixed. I quietly walk over to the corner of the room and crouch down, trying not to disrupt 
the conversation my colleagues are having with Wafa and her family. From the couch on the other side of the room, Malad is staring right down the lens of my camera. I, can, I make a face at him, and he jokingly sticks out his tongue at me. It's on. I know this game. I play this game with my own kids. This is a game of one-upmanship, with the goal of being not to be caught by anyone else in the room. Malad loses, quite quickly, as his uncle snaps Malad to attention. I continue to take pictures and listen to the conversation. Malad gets tired of adult talk. He quietly leaves the room. Later, Wafa takes us on a tour of her apartment. She and her husband, along with her three kids, sleep in one bedroom, while her in-laws sleep in the other. The ceiling is moldy. The small kitchen is worse. I think to myself that if I had to, my family and I could make this space work as a temporary home. But this is not temporary for Wafa. As far as she knows, this is the new normal for her and her family. She has a desire for something better, a new life outside of Iraq and Lebanon. But it's not accurate to say she has hope. In Iraq, her husband was a mechanic. Her kids did well in school. They had what they needed and life was good. Now, after fleeing their country with almost none of their material possessions, Wafa's family is amongst the poorest of the poor in the Middle East. They are displaced. They can't return to Iraq. They are not able to work in Lebanon. No other country will take them in. They are stuck. Overnight in December 2014, everything was taken away. The trauma of the loss, the things that they witnessed, and how they've been treated is almost too much. Wafa is scared. Wafa is tired. She would be lost if not for Grace. Grace and the dispensary see Wafa. They see her pain and they share its burden. They may not be able to fix everything, but they are standing with her. I find the lad in the bedroom. He's playing with a plastic truck and talking quietly to himself. If he's like my kids, he's telling himself a story about the world this truck inhabits. I wonder if this truck is busy picking up and dumping dirt somewhere other than Lebanon. Perhaps his imagination has led him back to Iraq, to his old backyard. Or maybe he's in an imaginary world somewhere far, far away from here. It doesn't matter. He's dreaming, and for me, that means there's hope. That's my lad. Next slide. Uh, later on in our trip, we visited uh, an area of Beirut uh, that uh, has a lot of the Palestinian refugees in it. On the right is a gentleman with glasses holding the water bottle. His name is Rashid. He's with an organization called PARD, Popular Aid, Relief, and Development. It's a, um, it's a uh, what's the word? Palestinian. It's a Palestinian-run organization um, that's expanded its mandate to work with all refugees. Uh, because it's figured out a system and MCC is partnering with them to help refugees in these urban settings. If you'll see on the left, that orange building used to be a hospital, but it became so overrun with uh, refugees that it's just turned into an apartment block. Uh, but if you look on the very top, they ran out of room even then, and people just started putting cinder block squares on top of cinder block squares uh, and growing the building up, turning it into an even higher structure for apartments. Malad... Uh, not Malad, Rashid, took us through what, what's called a gathering. A gathering is an informal refugee camp. It's a gathering because it's just a bunch of refugees gathering in a neighborhood and basically taking it over. And Rashid took us through the, um, this particular gathering. Next slide. Uh, 
And there were some very brave families that opened their homes to us, um, homes that you and I would never consider homes. They're rooms, not, uh, not even half the size of the stage, many without windows, many housing um, nine to 12 people. This particular room and this particular family had nine people sitting on a floor that was, or sleeping on a floor that was about uh, 10 by 10. And they were lucky, they had a window. Um, and it's hard because you want to see what's going on. And at the same time, you don't want to treat these people like they're some kind of animal in a zoo where you're wandering through looking at their poverty. And yet these women knew it was important for us to see their experience. Next slide. One of the things that PART is doing, including garbage pickup for these areas, which if you were living in this Palestinian um, gathering, you're one of the only areas that was getting uh, garbage picked up because PARD was organizing it. Um, but they're running a school. And this school was amazing. Um, one of the challenges with the Lebanese education system is you have to take an entrance exam in grade one. Um, and the thing is, the entrance exam is given in English. No Syrian refugee, I won't say no, most Syrian refugees do not know English. So your ability for a Syrian refugee or a Palestinian refugee to get into, into uh, through kindergarten into grade one was almost zero. So uh, PARD was starting to um, do a, a four-year education program, four-level education program um, at a kindergarten level. And they were being so successful that uh, this last year, they graduated 75 kids out of their kindergarten and all 75 made it into grade one into the uh, Lebanese school system. And once you're in the school system, you're in. It doesn't matter. You're going to make, you, they don't kick you out. You make your all the way through. So the fact that 75 refugees made it into the school system is a huge victory. This is Rita. Now, if you can't tell from this picture, Rita is a force. She is a force to reckon with. She's actually one of the founders of PART and that's current executive director. And she's up and down uh, Lebanon making the thing run. She was taking us on a bus this particular day to, um, to another gathering that was a tent gathering on the shores of the Mediterranean. And we were thinking, oh, the shores of the Mediterranean, beautiful. No, not beautiful. The Mediterranean in this particular area was littered with garbage and um, it had an open sewer system. And this particular uh, gathering of tents and makeshift houses was right on the beach. So much so that the room that we were in here in this picture, when the waters get high, it gets completely flooded, like by three or four feet. Uh, we were there at a time where there wasn't. Oh, jump back, sorry, my hands. I'm looking like I'm going, but I'm not. I'm just a hand talker. Um, this group of women were remarkable. We were, MCC is partnering with PARD, who's empowering this group of women um, to run what's, what's considered a women's council in this camp. These women were delivering all the social services to this camp. Um, they were delivering education. They were delivering health services. They were delivering food aid. They were doing, even doing advocacy work. I told you about this sewer system that was running right through the middle of camp. Somehow they got it shut down. Now, that's remarkable. One, because these are refugees. Two, these are women. Three, they're working with a government that's non-functioning. So to get this sewer system shut down was a remarkable thing. And so MCC, along with PARD, is empowering these women to govern this community. Now, there was one woman that every time we asked questions, she was answering in perfect English before any of us could have it translated. And this is Shunar. And Shunar uh, comes from Syria. And uh, I asked if Shunar could come outside with me. And I said, Shunar, your um, English is impeccable. Um, where did you learn English? And she said, well, um, 
I did my undergraduate degree in English literature. Would you like to discuss Hamlet? I said, duh. Um, I have a theater degree and I should know Hamlet and all I remember is there's a skull and people die. And so I was like, no, but I'll talk. Um, I said, so what, what, what were you doing when the war broke out? She said, well, I was doing my master's in IT. And it hit me. These people are us. We think that they're the other. We think that they, these people are far away and their experiences are not like ours. Their experiences are exactly like ours. They were leading middle-class lives, doing middle-class things, getting an education, working jobs, raising families. And in 24, 48 hours, they had to leave. They dropped everything, and now they're living in tents along a dirty Mediterranean that gets flooded. I asked Shunar, what does she have hope for for the future? And she says to leave this camp. She has a, a four-year-old daughter, and I said, do you tell your daughter about life back in Syria? And she said, absolutely not. This is her life now. We don't know long, how long we'll be here. There's no point in telling her what was. This is what is. I find Shunar to be an amazing woman. Uh, and I think you can see in this photograph just how much dignity and respect she has for herself. Uh, this woman uh, was in a similar camp a few kilometers away. And the reason I took this picture, she's holding up a cell phone because uh, she had just received an email that morning from her brother, who was still back in their city in Lebanon, who had finally been able to get to the, her particular neighborhood and was able to send her a picture of her house that had been completely bombed. You can't see it here, but all there's left is a staircase. Uh, and she'd been holding on hope to go back. Most refugees want to go home. Those who are coming to Canada are usually coming because they already have family here or because their lives have been so devastated that there's no point in going back. But Syrian and Iraqi refugees um, they do community together, and if they can get back to their old neighborhood with the people around them, they'll do it. Next slide. Uh, PARD was also running an after-school program, an aftercare program, and they were running it for refugees from Syria, from Iraq, from Palestine. They were running it for Lebanese who were living before the, below the poverty line. And this was a beautiful thing to see. Next slide. One of the leaders um, pulled me aside and said, you've got to take a picture of these girls. And I said, why? He said, one of them is uh, Lebanese, one of them is Syrian, and one of them is Palestinian. And they figured out that they can be friends. And so they sit and they have snack together every day. And I thought, that's amazing. You've got these three girls coming from three completely different regions whose parents or grandparents might see the other family as the enemy. And yet they're sitting there eating their bananas and yogurt and having a good time. That to me, reminds me that there is hope in the next generation. Next slide. We traveled north to a valley called the Bacah. If you've ever been to the Fraser Valley, it's very similar, except much higher. Uh, the Bacah Valley is at the height of um, the, peak of, uh, the summit of the Coquihalla, very high, but very fertile lands. And the day that we traveled, there was uh, municipal um, uh, elections. And there was, um, the, uh, the army was out all the time, but they were out in force. And you're not allowed to take pictures of the army, but I don't follow rules very well. And so if you look, oh, go back. If you look to the picture on your right, no, your left, if you look, looks like I'm taking a picture of someone in the bus, but if you look through it, there's a tank. And um, th there were checkpoints everywhere on this day because they didn't quite know what was gonna happen with the elections. And in the Bacah Valley, the, um, the, um, the town, the biggest town there is called Baalbek, and it's quite an ancient town. And the town there, the leading government is Hamas. 
Anyone know a little bit about Hamas? So Hamas is a, um, has been designated by, as a terrorist organization, but the way you win the hearts and minds of people is you govern well, and they govern very well. The road that we drove into, paved by Hamas. The social services in uh, the Bekaa Valley, sp sponsored by Hamas. So who are they going to elect? Hamas. Uh, this town was actually 12 kilometers away from the Syrian border. Next slide. These are stories you tell your wife when you get back. These are not stories you tell your wife in an email uh, from Lebanon. So this is elections. Um, I put these two pictures together because there was this group of men. Everyone there smokes the hookah, right? <laughs> right? Everyone smokes the hookah. I was waiting to see a three-year-old kid on the hookah, but there's just everybody on the hookah. So I'm sure that these men would have gone to this hookah place afterwards and smoked the hookah. Next slide. Um, I also put these two pictures together because, as I said, Baalbek's a very ancient city. There's Roman and Greek ruins there. And on your left, um, this is a stop to be seen that everyone wants a picture of. But on the right, that's a site to be seen that nobody wants a picture of. That's called an ITS, an informal tent settlement, where hundreds of refugees have just set up tents in a farmer's field. And we're so close to the border that this is likely a whole community that got up, left Syria, and planted themselves in this field because they know that there's power in numbers. And so they are likely paying rent to this particular farmer and living in a tent. Next slide. And I said we're up, this area is really high in elevation, so it gets quite cold in the winter. So MCC is working with an organization um, in northern Lebanon to rewrap all these tents and to provide them with kerosene heaters and food vouchers. And along with the Canadian government, this last year, MCC funneled $3 million into the... Um, to this program up north, which meant families like this who live in very small tent, two by four um, uh, wrapped tents uh, have heat and food security. Next slide. If you see the blue tent, that's an MCC wrapped tent. Next slide. These are what the tents look like if they're not wrapped. They're just thrown together. And so uh, imagine trying to keep your family warm and safe and secure in something that looks like that. This girl on the left, she was wonderful. She was the same age as my 13-year-old son. And um, she was so thirsty for education that she was teaching herself French. And uh, she was so elated when she figured out that one person on our team spoke French because they had a conversation back and forth and she got to practice. So she had a big smile on her face. Next slide. This woman um, represents something that is very important to MCC. Um, when you have 1.5 million refugees coming into a country that already has a very high poverty rate, those living in impoverished situations who are citizens of that country, if they see all the aid being delivered to the refugees, can get really bitter really fast. Because you've got all these foreigners who are getting all the help. And here you are trying to make a living out of it. And so peacemaking is a big part of what MCC does. And so we try and distribute our aid in such a way that we don't create conflict. And so MCC, with a partner organization, is delivering agricultural support to these families in the north who are eking by, but with a little bit of support, can actually start making a living for, the, living for their families. And in this case, MCC had supported this woman uh, to become a shepherdess, and she was starting to raise goats and sheep. And uh, the goats and sheep that she was raising, once she raised enough goats and sheep, MCC takes some of them and gives them to another family. She keeps to keep her flock. Her flock multiplies, and they keep going from there. And she was just delighted. Uh, with this whole situation and just very happy to show us her sheep. Next slide. So these are some of the stories. These are some of the people behind the headlines. These are real people. 
real people like you and me. And so when we were there, uh, the, one of the questions I always ask those people that we met is, what's the one message that I can bring back to Canada? And time and time again, the answer was, don't forget us. Don't forget us. They know the fickleness of our news cycle. They know the busyness of our lives. They have busy lives or had busy lives. They know that Alan's Curdie's body washing up on that shore is only going to play for so long. But this is not ending. This is not going away. And so if you're sitting there saying, so what can I do, Scott? This is uh, something I need to respond to. I have a simple answer, a very simple answer. It's remember these people. Simply remember these people. And whatever that means to you, I challenge you to remember these people. Maybe you remember them as a people group as a whole. Maybe you pick someone from this, these stories that I've just shared. But remember them. One of the things I brought with me today are these boxes. Um, there are My Coins Count boxes. This is a program that we run through MCC. This is really great for families. I have one of these. Um, I have three kids. And we leave this on our kitchen counter. And on Sundays, we put it on the um, table when we're having dinner and we just talk about um, some of the things that are going on in the world. Because it's important to share these things with your kids. It's not too, they're never too young to start sharing what's going on in the world. And in this case, my kids drop the coins into this box. This one's empty. And they're collecting coins for a year. And they know that their coins count towards supporting people around the world who, uh, who need some help. So if you have a young family, or if your grandparents, and this is something that you would love to do with your grandkids when they come over to grandma and grandpa's or nona and papa's, um, I'd invite you to come take one of these boxes. It's that simple. You can register your box uh, online at MCC, and we start sending you information about where your coins are going and stories, some of which I've shared today, and new ones that will emerge over the year about how your coins are going to be working to support uh, people who, like Shunar and Father Walid and Dr. Shabra and Rashid. So I'd invite you to pick that up. Uh, it's a good way to remember uh, these people and maybe some of these individuals that I'd shared with you today. So let me bless you before I go. So brothers and sisters of Creekside, receive this blessing. May our good and gracious God, who is full of love and hope and peace, may he remind you today by planting a seed in your heart May he remind you today of his great and extravagant love. And may the Holy Spirit soften your mind and heart that you may respond by sharing God's good and gracious love and working for peace and justice around the world. Amen. Thank you.